Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrone. I'm joined by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Sissy Sullivan? <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Whoo, here it is. I cannot believe this is here. The boss of it all. This is a big one. We're talking about shame. It can be so difficult to openly talk about one of my favorite movies because I usually I usually have such a strong emotional connection to them that it's hard to articulated. It's a feeling, a state of mind, a part of my being. For the past decade, I have been completely obsessed with Steve McQueen's 2011 masterpiece, Shame. I have never in my life had such a strong reaction to a movie than the first time I saw this film. Never. By 2011, I am very well into a life dedicated to film, and I saw shame, and right before my eyes, it was as if the language of cinema was being rewritten. When I saw shame in December 2011, I was only a few months away from filming my film Earrings, and I was having trouble identifying the tone I was going for. We were going to film this in like three months. And I was looking for the tone I wanted in other movies as examples. Dark, moody, European-influenced, patient, uncompromising. And then like a tidal wave, bam, I see shame. And it was as if Steve McQueen was giving me license to go where I wanted to go with my films. And it was like he was saying, it's fine, push your limits. You might scare some people, but if it's truthful, just get on with it. Let's get to it. It is the most memorable movie-going experience I still have ever had. I was inspired, mortified by some of the content, saddened, but I felt alive in the way that seeing a masterful movie can make a mad movie buff feel. I felt drunk walking out of that theater. Seriously, I just kind of stumbled out. And this movie is only 101 minutes long, and it changed my life. And in the 10 years since, I've done everything I can to maintain this sort of mystical relationship I have with this movie and and another quick connection to my own filmmaking and then I'll back off that subject a little bit and I'll kick it over to you but I edited that movie earrings very quickly it was really dumb honestly I wouldn't change any of the editing choices I made but I was so eager to share that movie with people with the world that I stayed up for ungodly hours rushing this cut and that was a really good lesson because it was foolish to put myself through that. So my point is, when I edited my next movie, Wait, I took my sweet time with it. I spent nine months editing it, playing with the order of scenes, finding a rhythm, finding a language. And once a week, I watched Shame. Nine months in a row. <laughs> I've studied this thing more than any other movie. I've seen it just as much as any other movie I've seen. It has influenced my filmmaking career more than any other I'm obsessed with movies, and this is my movie. How do you like shame? <laughs> Holy shit. How am I going <laughs> to top that? One of the coolest things that you talked about just now, and to me, it's not just your relationship to shame. It's your relationship to the filmmaker, Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This may be your favorite of his work, but all of his work inspires you and does something to you that I think is so important for every artist to acknowledge who it is that does that for them. We like so many different filmmakers. Like, we talk about them endlessly on this. But there's really only a small select few that are, they're the ones that speak your language, that speak to you, 
that inspire you, that motivate you, that make you see things that you've never seen before. And I think that is what should be celebrated um, along with the movie. But the fact that you can relate to another artist on this level and his work inspires you so much should be something that everyone listening, if they're a filmmaker or any type of artist, anyone that you look up to in that way, it's vital. It's absolutely vital for a creative person. Yeah, that's very well said. And I appreciate that because he is just one of my one of my directors. I will follow him through whatever material he wants to tackle. You and I, are, our favorite film last year was Lover's Rock. I mean, and my relationship with him started with hunger. And, you know, when I tell people how much I love shame and we're going to get into this, but a lot of uh, a lot of eyebrows will be raised based on the subject material of shame. And I'm like, I can talk just this passionately about hunger and that is completely different subject material, but it's not necessarily the content of the movie. It's how he's telling it, like you're saying. Exactly. When I saw this movie in theaters, man, I don't think I was prepared mentally, emotionally, um, artistically for what this all was. Mm -hmm. All I remember leaving the feeling with was an ugly feeling. It actually took me a very long time to rewatch it. I had to wait like a couple years because I remembered I was like, I need some time. Yeah, I think that's fair. I need some time to like, I want to go back and rewatch this because I knew that what I was watching was something unlike anything else. But I needed to just take a little break, saw it a second time, completely changed my whole entire relationship to it. I understood it. I was blown away by the creativity and the, I mean, mostly the second time was mostly a cinematography uh, take on it. Mm -hmm. So that was 2000. I want to say that was 2013. I saw it a second time. So I've not seen it since then. And now I've rewatched it and I have a brand new relationship to it. And in such a different way, it's actually the lightest relationship to it I've had. Mm -hmm. Now I'm looking and I go, I, I see the hope in here. I never felt hope before with this. Now I do. Weird. Well, yeah, our relationship can change with a movie because we change or or whatever the circumstances are. But OK, I'll just say this now that we try really hard to avoid spoilers on this podcast, except in these solo movie episodes. So we're going to talk about the whole thing here. It's all going to be out in the open. That's how we can have the best, most well-rounded discussion about it. So that leads me kind of straight to the end and not to get too in to detail about it, but it is open to interpretation, how things end and his state of mind. And however you perceive that is probably however you are feeling when you watched it. So yeah, it's different from everyone. And I've seen this so many different times and had so many different feelings and relationships with it. I've let my brain go down every road, like every possibility, because the magic of this movie is what is not said and what the viewer is forced to assume in many, many regards. So I've just gone down so many rabbit holes and I, that's how I built such a strong relationship with the movie is trying to engage with it in a way that I do feel compelled to engage with movies because I love them so much, but this is a completely different level. This is a level that just genuinely does border on obsession in terms of me, of how much I love a movie. And this is a movie about a compartmentalized man named Brandon played by Michael Fassbender who has a successful career in New York, but is quietly suffering from sex addiction. His life is, you know, it's more or less even. He has a vice, certainly, but it seems manageable. 
until his fiery sister, Sissy, played by Carrie Mulligan, shows up unannounced and disrupts Brandon's life. This is a movie about a sex addict. There is a lot of sex in it. The sex is treated very seriously, very clinically, yet, despite the subject material, the intention of the sex in this movie is not to titillate. And I believe that very strongly. If you watch these scenes closely, just watch Fassbender's face, watch them on mute, and then watch how his partners react to him, both during and especially after. You have the whole emotional arc of the movie right there. I mean, the first time we see him prepare for sex, it's thoughtful, it's content, routine, pleasant. The money is already on the table. And then the last time we see him have sex, he's as far removed from contentment as is possible. I mean, he damn near looks like he's about to die. And, you know, it's the same with Carrie Mulligan, who plays Sissy. Mulligan is an actor who does not do a lot of nudity, and she has admitted to never seeing shame in full, yet she fought very, very hard and begged Steve McQueen for this role based on Sissy's first scene alone, in which she stands completely nude in front of her brother. So when you read all this and you see all this and you're like, hmm, an actor who doesn't like to do nudity, but she's eagerly volunteering for this, it begs you to consider this is a sister standing fully comfortably nude in front of her brother. What in the hell does that tell you about them? That's why you take the role. Yeah. I mean, what do you do when you see a script where mm-hmm. you've got this dialogue? Because the way that they if we're just jumping into that scene. The way that they play that scene, it's as if they're not, she's not naked. Right. It's, exactly. it's a very, very brother sister. Like, why the hell did you like come into my room? Like, why, like, what are you doing here? Like, don't use all the towels. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do? Like, I, I, and then she's sort of like, Brandon, you hurt me. You're like, what is this shampoo? This is gross. Yeah. But they're, the way they're talking to each other, I almost, saw past that she was naked in front of him, maybe in the way that he saw past it too. Because what they ended up talking about was such specific to their brother-sister relationship that I didn't even think about the fact she was naked. And I actually thought upon this viewing that this was the most uncomfortable I felt with their dynamic because it their brother-sister relationship rang true above all else. Yeah, and that's what makes it so uncomfortable is that he doesn't even notice that Mm -hmm. she's naked or doesn't really seem to care. And the way it is shot, we're only seeing her through the reflection in the mirror. That's what makes it so unnerving is that this seems so routine. And you're like, these are grown adults, a brother and sister just talking to each other this way. And they don't reveal until the next scene that they're brother and sister. So I I kind of had an inkling like going into it, but I remember the first time watching it. And when he's making her breakfast the next morning, very interesting that he doesn't make himself food. He only makes her food. And that's when you figure out like, oh, my God, this is brother and sister. So I was like catching up going, oh, man, where are we headed? Like, where is this movie taking me? And I still have that, you know, I still have those feelings when I watch it sometimes because I'm a great admirer of well done movies about addiction. And if a movie about addiction is done well, there's a good chance it's not going to be a good date movie. (laughs) Addiction (laughs) movies aren't typically, you know, fun for the whole family. That's the territory. One of the reasons I'm drawn to these stories is because of the emotional trauma the characters are going through. And what did they go through to get here, to get to this desperate bottom? How much longer are they going to be able to maintain, to survive? 
Most addiction movies focus on substances, not sex. And there are some genuinely masterful ones. The Lost Weekend, Days of Wine and Roses, Leaving Las Vegas. Have that triple feature and you're going to have a serious alcohol wake-up call, you know. Requiem for a Dream, Candy, The Basketball Diaries. Those take heroin very, very seriously. My point is, Shame is the best movie I've ever seen about addiction, period. I've never seen a movie that so perfectly encapsulates its subject's emotional hell better than this one. And again, one of the reasons I'm drawn to these stories is trying to just explore in my head what these people must have gone through to get to this point. And this movie captures that better than any other. So just in the addiction movie genre, you know, where does this stand for you? Oh, man. It's up there. It, I mean, it, it, it really is. Um, I mean, you, you referenced one in that um, list of movies, Candy. That is one that really affected me. Yeah. Basketball Diaries, for sure. But, I mean, yeah, this one has to be in the top five. Well, my point was, and all those movies you just listed are substances. Mm-hmm. That's what's interesting, is that he doesn't have he doesn't have that thing to kind of fall back on to where his judgment is being impaired. And that is... That presents itself for a different sort of acting challenge. This this acting, Fassbender's performance as Brandon Sullivan, is so internal and we don't get to see him. You know, most of us have had a drink in our lives, so we know what it means to push that too far and we can identify with someone playing drunk. He's in a totally different headspace that a lot of people just aren't that familiar with. And that's one of the things that can make it, and he's doing it so well and so convincingly that that's what makes it, you know, an uncomfortable thing to watch at times. But Damn, that's the exercise. I mean, we see what triggers him, what troubles him, what calms him. And all of this is said with little to no dialogue. He, Brandon almost never talks about himself. And when he does, it's very minimal. And he never talks, never talks about how he's feeling. But we know because Fassbender is so in tune with his character. And McQueen is so in tune with his own material, which includes how the camera is moved, how long shots are held for. Every nuance of Fassbender's performance and Mulligan's is captured here. It's just, it's absolutely fucking breathtaking. And when you watch what he does, not what he says, I mean, that's really everything. Um, you know, the, the way that he moves about his day, the way it's disrupted, the decisions that he makes, the, the choices. But then even in the, you know, you could even relate the substance back to like when he's actually trying to throw out. Yeah. All of all of the porn he has in his home. The like, purge. Yeah. It, it's it's the same thing with alcohol or drugs or substances, like mm-hmm. you were saying. Like people that have that moment of like, fuck it, I'm done with this, they throw it all out. And he's just throwing out computers. Yeah. And, everything. Spaghetti, like whatever. <laughs> but there there you go, right there is there is that addict mentality. There is that similar thing that's there. But you're right, when substances aren't involved and it's more of an internal and physical, because sex is a very physical sensation, it, it literally tears him apart. And you see it happen mm-hmm. before your eyes in this movie. As far as addiction movies go, this is a movie where the word addiction is never uttered once. I believe the word sex, as it is intended, is only said once. She goes, don't talk to me about sex life, you know, not from you. It's That's the only time the word sex is mentioned. And into some rewatches of it, when my obsession was first starting, I started to get traction of how he always has something else in his body. He's got the Red Bull at work. There's emphasis put on the coffee. 
like twice he's making coffee. There's emphasis put on it. He's not a chain smoker, but he smokes cigarettes really deliberately, like when he's stressed or down and out. He does a line of cocaine, drinks. It's it just, it's very interesting in a way of adhering to that addictive personality and to show us kind of subtly without ever hammering at home because even when he doesn't really act like he's on coke when they're in the hotel room it's just showing you it's giving us a little insight like he's always got probably something else going here even if it's caffeine even if it's nicotine i i just i really like that detail about it and steve mcqueen and michael fassbender had worked together before shame as we mentioned in the bruising film hunger from 2008 it's another tough movie but another favorite of mine, I on my blog once, I broke that entire movie down shot by shot and screenshot every single shot in the movie and described like what I thought the intention behind the shot was. I didn't know there were like 400 shots in the movie. I thought there were like 100, so bigger exercise than I thought. But <laughs> wow, did I learn a lot about that movie. <laughs> Fassbender plays IRA activist Bobby Sands in a performance you you really can't unsee that once you watch it. It's remarkable. Based on my multiple viewings of Hunger, I was so primed for Shame. I was so excited for Shame's teaser trailer. I kept watching it over and over. After Shame, Fassbender starred as the monumental asshole Edwin Epps in Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave. A guy is a total, real, true, gutless monster, and Fassbender plays him to perfection. These are three masterful performances. Note perfect, as you like to say. Brandon Sullivan in Shame is certainly the quietest of the three characters, but he's my favorite. So I just wanted to talk. I know we had kind of touched on the McQueen Fassbender relationship, but let's just give that give their movies, you know, a little bit of some attention here because they do. I just want them to make everything together, you know, but well, I think that's just it's the dream. You know, I mean, every director and actor search for each other. It's similar to what we were talking about earlier about the, the the directors that speak to us, the other artists that do. Every director is looking for that one actor that gets it. Every actor is looking for that one director that helps them get it. There's actually a funny story of when Steve McQueen first met Fassbender, he didn't like him. Mm -hmm. And I then, know. you know, it, it's just so <laughs> funny how that works out and the way that they speak to about one another and to one another it's very, very endearing, but it's also very serious. Mm -hmm, it, it, very. Like they, they know what the work that they do is, but they also have such a brotherly relationship that I think that to me is the most exciting thing about watching the movies that they do together. What is McQueen going to do with Fassbender? And what is Fassbender going to do again with McQueen? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Steve McQueen, I love you. I will never talk bad about you or your films. The one thing that Widows was missing could have had Fassbender playing one of those husbands. God, I would have <laughs> loved that. Just in that open. I don't care which one, any of them. I actually, I thought, I think I read an interview where it was, he was trying to make it work. But, you know, who knows, schedules, all that stuff. Steve McQueen, I think by his own admission, is a very strong personality. You can see that in interviews. You can see that if you watch press conferences from festivals where he'll, he's like, you know, they're in front of like a hundred people from the press and he'll just start kind of zeroing in on the Q&A moder moderator and be like, what does that question mean? What, what are you asking? What are you saying? He can have sort of a kind of a combative personality, but it's all about in terms of filmmaking, he's all about reaching that truth, that reality. And I will always remember the quote from John C. McGinley, who has famously worked with Oliver Stone many times. And Oliver Stone, not the easiest guy to work with, but John C. McGinley's like, it's actually really simple. He's kind of a lunatic, 
But if you move in with him and go with his rhythm, then it's artistic nirvana. And that seems to be what Fassbender and McQueen have here. They Because, yeah, you can see them even interact with each other. And it's it's very serious. They take what they're doing very seriously. But they can also, you know, cut up a little bit. So based on these three performances alone, Michael Fassbender, I'll always call him one of my favorite actors. And I, I love so much of his work. And I'm going to see whatever the hell he's in for the rest of his career. But, oh, God, I just I love him in this so much. I think it's it's an all-timer performance for me. Like, genuinely one of the top ten best acting performances I've ever seen in a movie. And I think he also fits the bill for being the perfect person at the timing for Right for Everything because the age he was at, mm-hmm. even the way he looks, he's a very, very masculine-looking face. How that works so well with him being a man in this, such a masculine man with this sex addiction, and just the levels of the way he treats himself as a beast... I think it's very, very polarizing to be able to look at such a well-groomed and kept individual that behaves like this, and his look serves both of that. It's, so it's one of those roles where it's like, who else could do it as well? It's purely by the way they look. Yeah, and it's everything in the movie is servicing everything else. Like, yeah, Michael Fassbender and Steve McQueen didn't create that apartment. Like, production designers, prop masters, they are in there fine-tuning that to make it that give it that minimalist vibe even i mean everything he has in there it's like yeah that's i don't think he'd own any more than this and probably not any less and the simple clothes he wears the way he wears his hair ah it's so like i said just so in tune with the material i definitely want to switch to mulligan here because i will admit that the thing i'm most drawn to in shame is the backstory between brandon and sissy and a lot of that is due to the intrigue and the way that Carrie Mulligan plays Sissy because this is by long and far her finest performance to me. My God, the pain. Sissy, she's the emotional antithesis of Brandon. It is my belief that they have shared trauma and it is fascinating to watch them interact with the world differently because of that. She's so loud and obvious, craving attention, no boundaries, yet still completely alone, just like him. McQueen, Fassbender, and Mulligan all dissected the Sullivan family backstory. They worked out every detail and arrived at a shared conclusion, and they promised to keep it between them, and that's all on screen. That's all I care about. I do not need to know what conclusions they came up with. But that's the work, man. Yeah. That's what makes the difference. You could very well have a director and two actors who have working with this same script and have them come up with their own, because a lot of times that's the case. It's up to you. Figure that out as the actor. And you do. You do your own investigation, discovery for yourself, your backstory, if you will. But in order to make something come so alive off of the screen like this, that is the work you have to do. You need to come together and get into it and really find that shared thing. Because once you both live in that world, that's what makes it so connected. That's what makes their dynamic sing on on screen. And it's so, so vital. So I'm glad that you brought that up and talked about that because it's just that difference between being good and being the best. Most of the people I talk to who have seen this movie, or I've shown it to a lot of people and sat in the room and watched it with them, 
And a high amount of the people will say the most uncomfortable scene is that scene between them on the couch when he's in his towel because you don't know which way that's going to go. And you're like, oh, man, is this is this what this movie's been building toward like here now? And then it just it pivots. Thank God it pivots. But that's the that's the constant mystery of the movie that's still uh, God. I mean, I was watching this just before we went on Mike right now. And I'm, that scene is just so uh, it's so unnerving to me. And. I think shame is really difficult for a lot of people to watch, not because of the sex, but because it may remind them of something within themselves. Because, you know, we've all been through stuff. And when you arrive at a certain age and you look back, there's bound to be something troubling back there. And whether or not you've dealt with it is up to you. But shame is a movie about two people who have not dealt with it. And that can be very triggering for some people to watch it can be uncomfortable but that's the world it lives in and the intrigue of it and what's not said is why i will always keep going back to it i kind of felt the arrival of sissy to brandon she's his savior okay and you said it right best earlier she disrupts his life Mm -hmm. but the life he's living is not good for him so she comes in throws a giant wrench into it because she's loud because she's the way she is but ultimately if there was ever going to be a change that he was going to make it came as a result of her and what she did staying in his place and in a weird way i was sort of like was she his savior in this well it usually takes a disruption to get us unstuck so a lot of people have to hit bottom, quote unquote bottom, whatever that is to you. I think yes. he achieves his personal bottom in this film. And that is because of her, because yeah. the events that are put into motion when she shows up ultimately lead to a few days later, him storming out and going on his binge. So I think there's absolutely a world where Brandon Sullivan is 55 doing exactly what he's doing in the opening of this movie and just going through the motions and doing the job but burning through money, not doing this stuff healthily, I can't imagine that goes anywhere good. But because this disruption comes into fold, it forces him to look at himself. He has no choice. He's being called out for his sex life. That never happens. So mm-hmm. he has no choice but to deal with it and handle it. And he doesn't handle it well, as a lot of people don't. So that's, again, that's the volley of the movie. If she doesn't show up, there isn't a movie. She's the disruption. She's the driving force. Do you think that before she comes into the picture... He is aware at all of what's going on with him. Is he aware that he's a sex addict and has an issue? Yeah, or or that maybe, yeah, like he's got an issue. Like that's, I guess that's the best way to put it. Maybe he's not ready to say he's a sex addict, but he's like, maybe this is a bit much. Or maybe, yeah, exactly, this is an issue. Mm -hmm. That's right in the title. What he's feeling and what's driving him through his life, those are addictive compulsions. So I think he has a lot of shame through whatever he's been through, I think he has a lot of shame for how he's living his life now. Some of the first clearest words in the movie are, I find you disgusting. Mm-hmm. Boom, it's a shot of him, even though he's not the one being talked to. This is all telling you, in my opinion, how he feels about himself. I don't know if he thinks he is ready to do what he does at the end of the movie. Yeah. I don't know if he's ever gone that far with it. In terms of literally, like in that bar, putting his life on the line, because you don't He has just this vendetta against himself in his head. So I think he is content with his behavior, but I definitely think he is aware 
that he does not engage with the world like other people. We don't see him with more friends. He has his very yep. solitude life. He doesn't want to have to explain himself to anyone. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't want to have, certainly not his fucking sister. So yeah, you live alone. You live in isolation. You live in your internal shame. And I imagine the only thing that makes that shame go away, even for a few seconds, is sex or something related to sex. Yeah. I know we've talked about scenes as we've gone on, but I thought it would just kind of be fun to like start at the beginning and break things down and yeah. talk about favorite scenes as we go, favorite shots. I did kind of want to point out some background information. This movie was shot for $6.5 million. That's crazy. That's really good. They shot it in 25 days. It made $20.4 million, which doesn't seem like a lot, but this was an NC-17 rated movie, which meant it did not play, at least in America, in Regal, AMC, no major chains. It would only play in smaller theaters. I saw it at a landmark when the DVD came out, it wasn't sold in Target or Walmart. You had to get it on Amazon. So for an NC-17 rated movie, which Fox Searchlight did not pressure him to change, they never gave him a note to trim something down, you know, get an R rating. They let him submit his movie however he wanted. And, you know, it, that's a pretty good turnout for that strong of a rated movie. Another fun fact I learned about the movie before we get into scenes is that the two producers who helped produce Shame, the movie they made directly before it and won the Oscar for was the King's Speech. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, but how fucking hilarious is that that the two dudes win an Oscar for the King's Speech and they very, they went after McQueen. Like, they wanted to do his next movie. So, you know, could not have two polar, more polar opposite movies, but I just got a huge, huge kick out of that. That's funny. So the movie opens with this incredible montage that is kind of this like crazy eight narrative style. It's edited so well. It forces you to engage with it. It's fun. You kind of have to play along. And I remember seeing it. And when we see him on that subway and he's making eyes at the at the woman, then we hear him having sex. And I remember being like, oh, is he having sex with her and then you know we cut to the previous night and he's hired a prostitute so i i just remember like oh my god this is right from the beginning like you're hooking me in with this style of this perfect way to introduce this character because again the words addiction are not mentioned the word sex is not mentioned there's no like meeting rooms where people are in there like sex anonymous meetings there's nothing like that we're just thrown right into this guy's world and it's one of my favorite openings to a movie i mean oh my god it's it's actually my favorite scene of the movie. Oh, great, great. So when he's looking at the woman in the subway mm -hmm. and they're just exchanging this back and forth eye contact, this is the best example for this character as showing the example of chasing the dragon. Every addict chases their dragon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, maybe this is just symbolizing that chasing the dragon, like starting out something is fun, something is sexy, it's dangerous. But then when you go down that road, it ends up not being any of those things. And yeah, you're left alone at the top of a subway platform. Yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what do you try to do when you're there, when you're still chasing that one thing, but it's not there? But uh, I love the subway scene. I, that's two very good actors just working with the camera, too. And the music. Oh, the music. Oh, my God, yeah. We can talk about Harry Escott. Like there were a good like five, six years there when the score for this, there's not, he doesn't have many tracks on the soundtrack. It's just Brandon, the, that opening, then the unraveling 
and they sound very similar and then the end credits but god i've wrote to those so much so so much i love the music it really propels everything forward and i think that's the ultimate like chasing the dragon because of how the film ends the dragon's still there dragon's still on your back like whatever whatever it is so what what are you going to do now it's a new day guy you've been through a lot but like (laughs) the song is the same the subway looks a little cleaner it doesn't have all that graffiti on the wall if you notice in the end but i don't know what does that symbolize but yeah you're right like he doesn't get to have that so then he has to trudge on into work and then the next time he's fulfilling his addiction is in the work bathroom and and then i want to talk about this when they go to the bar because we gotta we gotta make some room for james badgedale the great james badgedale as his boss david who is i don't know hmm, how many fucking guys have you known like this in your life i know guys who have dressed like that who have had such similar jobs even in new york the way he personified what that guy is about it is so fucking perfect i love him in this movie total asshole totally arrogant totally annoying the actor in real life i've seen so many interviews with him he is nothing like that he's so down to earth such a grounded guy i mean god just that first scene of his in this the way he's dancing and hitting on the the women oh my god he's such a buffoon but yeah tell me about james badgedale oh dude I, in so many ways he steals the movie yeah like every scene he's in he fucking steals it he is truly that guy he does he plays it to absolute perfection and it's very fun to watch fassbender or should i say brandon play off of him because Mm -hmm. brandon is not a guy that talks very much but clearly is somewhat entertained by this guy fassbender knows that this guy's a complete joke when it comes to picking up women and I think what we see has happened before, and I don't even yes. think the boss knows it. I think Fassbender yep. Brandon has done exactly what happens. I mean, he doesn't make the call to, I mean, the, the woman picks him up on, the, you know, need a ride. Yeah. She picks him up. But I think he has planted that scene and literally stood, he, he chooses not to dance for a reason. He stands in the background, only looks at the blonde, has eyes at her. And I think he knows exactly what he's doing. He's saying like, yeah, you're over there with my buffoon friend, but if you, you know. If you want a real man, I'm right over here. I can, we can wait till the night's over. It's like he's using him as a wingman, but Badgedale doesn't even know it. He's just so yeah. clueless and so up his own ass that he's not aware of his role in this whole little game. <laughs> it, exactly. And, and, it, and it all changes when he hits on his sister because now it's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, this was all fun and games going out, doing all this, but now you're, you're actually invading in what I close off that's when the whole dynamic changes between the two of them. But uh, that scene at the bar is, um, it's got to be one of the the lightest scenes of the movie. If there's like levity mm-hmm, in any sort mm-hmm. of scene and like watching the way the blonde looks at Fassbender, like so many of those girls when they're talking to a douchebag like that guy, like they clearly know exactly who this is until someone interesting shows up and it's like, oh, who are you? Who are you? And let's let's get to New York, New York, because I think we mm-hmm. dissected the sissy introduction a lot, which is uh, maybe the most telling scene of the movie. But again, that's there's everything you need to know about those two characters is when they see each other in the movie for the first time. But yeah, sissy is a lounge singer of sorts. She's got some gigs in town and she's going to be performing. So Brandon takes this shithead boss to go see her. And what happens is really the most emotional moment of the movie in terms of 
Brandon and his reaction because, again, this is maybe more so than any other scene in the movie. This is the one that caught the most shit and still catches shit that people say it's tirelessly boring. Why does it last so long? The whole point Steve McQueen is trying to make here is look at their eyes, look at the way they're looking at each other, look at the way Michael Fassbender is playing it. They shot this once. James Badge Day on Michael Fassbender had not heard Carrie Mulligan sing. They had cameras set up on each person. They did it once, and then that was it. So all the reactions are genuine and real. And this is, man, when you dig under, and it's not, it's not about the song. It's not for how long it goes. It's just about, like, why is he crying when she's singing this? Oh, my God, there's so much built into this. And then the way he won't even talk to her when she comes over to the table, like, yeah, it was good. Yeah. And the shithead boss has to be the one like he was crying tears crying crying oh man but just yeah let's let's get into this new york new york scene a little bit that's that's actually like the like that was what hit me the most was the way that he didn't acknowledge to her like he wasn't gonna let her in and celebrate yes. you know her talent or her charisma or her voice or anything it was just like the word he uses is interesting yeah interesting like, yeah it's so demeaning when someone says that to you like when some when you when you do something like that, like so you express yourself in that way, and someone just refuses to give you any type of mm-hmm. I mean, not validation, but just even acknowledgement that that just happened, so telling between their relationship. But I mean, the New York, New York. I mean, man. I mean, we we spoke about this on on a previous podcast talking about um, scores and movies, but this was this was our big connection to shame when we. We're working on my short, There I Go. I had this idea in my head for a jazz singer, and I was like, did you ever see Shame? And that started everything. I didn't know that they set up the camera because no one had heard Carrie mm-hmm. Mulligan sing. Mm-hmm. In my movie, the guy who did my music, he wouldn't let me hear the song. <laughs> he recorded yeah. it with the actress <laughs> without me knowing. And we're about to shoot it. She knows the song. I don't, I don't get to hear it. And he's like, you're not going to hear it until we, until we shoot it. I'm like, well, let's shoot my coverage first because mm-hmm. we're going to get a genuine reaction. And so it's funny that like, this was the inspiration for that. And yet the same tool was used to elicit that, that first impression upon hearing what it was by McQueen. I didn't know that. That's, that's very cool. Well, yeah, your guy told me that you hadn't heard it. So I was like, all right, we're going to do the shame thing here. Like I'm going to put it on Nick first and we're going to get his genuine reaction of hearing this song for the first time. And I, you know, I didn't want to like replicate the exact kind of shots of shame. Oh yeah. That would be a total exercise in futility, but like I positioned you in front of the bar And so you have a very like lush background like she kind of does when she's singing. And then I tried to isolate the singer like Michael Fassbender's isolated. But yeah, that's still one of my favorite things that I shot. And we use that scene as a template. Yet another example of this film bleeding over into our filmmaking lives. And God, I just it's just so a part of me. I can't help it. But, you know, back to the scene in the movie, there's that whole thing. And then everything like you're saying turns once the boss David changes his seat and goes and sits next to her and now they're touching and it's like, oh my God. And a really cool thing about this sequence is there's a whole, they shot a whole bunch of stuff getting them into the car. So it was not scripted as they're kind of flirting, they order champagne in the bar and then boom, they're making out in the car. There was a whole, like you saw like that, that time. And that is one of the things that the the editor, Joe Walker, the great editor, that 
is what he said was his main contribution to the movie was showing Steve a cut to be like, take this out. Let's just boom, jump to them making out in the cab. We're on Brandon's face. That's telling us everything we need to know. And that's an amazing editing cut because you can kind of like, you know, again, it's a 101 minute movie. I'm not going to mind if there's eight or 10 extra minutes in it. You know, I love this movie, but just knowing that they shot that and then having the confidence to just go, nope, just scrap it. And it leads to that perfect cut of him in that cab window, which is like, you're just sitting there like, oh my God, they went there with it. This is gross. It, it's appalling. Like, because, yeah. and I think you're right. That's really cool that they cut that because sure, exactly what you said. Like we could absolutely live here for a little bit longer, but we get enough from the performances that he's going in uh-huh. and you see Fassbender, you know, he just is like, I'm just going to get some drinks. And then he comes back and he's not even a part of this. The The energy is between these two. So then uh-huh. that cut goes from awkward flirtation to now physical making out. It's a beautiful cut because we just upped so many levels and we just get smashed in the face by it. And that's what you want. Like that's that's the cut that that's gonna wow. That's so cool that that wasn't that there was gonna be more leading up to it, and then the decision. And the way I and the reason why I say that's confident is because we it's it's totally believable. We believe that Sissy and David would be doing this. We don't need ten extra minutes convincing us that this is going to happen. It's like oh no, we just jump cut to them making out. Like this is gross, but yeah, I believe these two would do that. Yeah, and exactly, because their characters are so bold, mm-hmm. both of them. Like, if we were talking a little bit some more, like, maybe standoffish people that are building up to this, we might need those scenes. But because he is how he is, and she is completely accepting and into it, we get it. We don't need that build. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So then... And that leads us to, I would say, the second most discussed scene in the movie, which is strange because it's just a run. But you either like the run or you don't like the run. And you and I, we love the run. And here's why. I am not here, nor are you. We are not here to explain the intentions of the filmmaker and to say, if you don't like the run, you don't get it. How dare you? It's it's not like that. I'm just telling you what it means to me. And what it means to me is the first time I saw this movie, I had no fucking clue what Brandon was going to do in that apartment. I don't know if he's going to go into the room because his boss is hooking up with his sister in his bed. I don't know if he's going to go like break into the room and yell or if he's going to go try to join them. I, I have no idea. This movie set itself up in a way. I'm like, he's pacing around the apartment. He's flipping out. And I'm thinking like, Jesus, can I just have a break? Yes, you can. Sure, here it is. It's this glorious, you know, midnight run to Madison Square Garden, and it just allows you to relax, and it eases the tension just for a couple minutes because this movie has been cooking and cooking, and now we're getting to this really strange place. So just for a second, you're allowed to pause, reflect, get into his headspace, think about, hmm, this is an interesting reaction to what's going on because, you know, how would you react to a similar situation? People you know, how would they react? I don't foresee myself going out for a jog, but he does. So that's that's what's so fucking interesting about it. And what it just gives you that time to meditate on what's going on in the movie, where he's at, and then what the hell's going to happen from here? Because the next scene is that really explosive, you know, get out, get out of my room, which is like just so startling and 
the most explosive he is in the movie, but we just get this nice little respite and I love it. And who the hell does this in the middle of their movie? Just like calms it down for two minutes. But Steve McQueen, you know, he's the master of these long takes, but oh God, I love the run. What I also find interesting too is why doesn't he actually go out and find a girl? Because that's his answer to every Mm -hmm. other thing that he's faced with when he's conflicted. Yep. But the coolest part about the run that I found when we finally get to that that the the two minute run and he's at the red light and you see Madison Square Garden in the background, I've almost completely forgot what was happening. Mm-hmm. I got so focused in on the run and with the music, I had forgotten what's going on in his apartment with his sister and his boss. Yeah, maybe that's what he was trying to do. It's so cool. (laughs) Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point that probably deserves a little more attention. Like, why doesn't he go get laid or just quite simply go get off? You know, why doesn't he go do any of those substances earlier that I was talking about? He elects to do something healthy in the midst of this. Like, this is one of the more troubling things that he's, you know, victim to in the movie that is no fault of his own. This just happens to him. So, yeah, it's those are all very, very telling choices and allows you just to dig into this guy's mindset more. Like, what the hell kind of shame is buried within this guy to where he can't go, uh, okay, enough's enough. Like, you go to a fucking hotel or so, or just anything, you know? Oh, man. Like, man. anyone would have been like, are you serious right mm-hmm. now? In my bed? Yeah. In my room? He flips out in the apartment, sitting with, uh, like, all of this angst and conflict and yeah, he decides just to leave it. Let it happen. Yeah. Go for a run. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And there is no answer. There really isn't. That's what's so great about it. That's a really, really fun, long take in the movie. It's very nice and steady. Uh, and even more fun and longer take comes shortly thereafter when he's at the first date with Marianne, which is just a fantastic first date scene in its awkwardness and the fact that it's held in one shot that very slowly pushes in that you can't you know you can't really tell from the naked eye and a fun thing to do is whenever this movie is available on streaming platforms you can like (laughs) scrub through it you know kind of slowly and see that push in it's just oh my god it's so cool to watch but you know I do want to talk a little bit about the the Steve McQueen oneer because he's great with those but to dive into the date a little bit I always loved how You know, we see him smoking alone before and then he's like sitting there watching her in the restaurant and he just doesn't look happy. He looks like he's about to do like a chore and he's like and I'm watching it like, okay, is he considering, Okay, should I actually try to date this woman or is this am I just trying to get laid tonight? You know, that's all like all that complexity is going on. Like I got to work next to this. This is my boss's assistant. Like this is I, I, I don't know there's so many complexities like that, but I love that date for so many reasons. The way Nicole Bahari just plays off of him throughout the movie, but especially in this, she's kind of leaning back. She's owning the conversation, steering it. And oh my God, it's just, it's really, really something. It's very fascinating to see that he's, the dude's never on a date in the whole movie. He either mm-hmm. buys this or goes out and wherever he's at and and finds it. Maybe, maybe like even to your point, like maybe this is just a guy in his world God, I hate dates. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, why did I do this? I hate these so much. But my favorite part of the whole entire thing, not my favorite part, but one of my favorites is that he shows up and he just goes, am I late? 
Yeah. <laughs> she's like, and I'm she's glad like, you could. I'm glad you could come. And she's like, Yeah, you know what the fuck, man. Yeah. And, <laughs> but he knows he's late. He's been sitting there watching. Yeah. Her. Like he knows he's late. That's part of this. It's part of this whole mystery. Like, come on, dude. What is this a game or are you just this tortured? Like you can't go in there. Uh, yeah. One thing that is awesome about this scene in terms of the shot construction of it just being one take is the amount of busyness. Like McQueen has extras just walking right through the camera. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a disconnect going on. Well, obviously within inside of himself, but him and her in the dialogue are not on the same page with things. No, but no. we're also at the same time getting this disconnect and these people coming through, which just enhances this type of feeling all within one shot. We're actually learning the most personal things about him in this date. Yes, yes. Very important to hone in on this. If you're like a screenwriter and you're trying to think about how you need to get across certain information, a character's information, this is one of the best examples of how to do it because it comes more than halfway through the movie. This is how we learn about him on this date that's not really going very well. It, yeah. And and also the waiter. Oh, my God. I... I love imagining it. It kind of seems like he's hitting on it to me. Like he puts the napkin in his lap. It just, uh, he seems like he's got a little, got a little thing for Brandon there. I don't know. know, Maybe. Hey, that's one hell of a choice to make as that actor too. Like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are so many different ways that a director could choose to shoot this scene is just a testament to how confident he is that. And also to what you said way back early in the movie or in the pod, holy shit, you can do it like this. Mm-hmm. Like you can mm-hmm. challenge the way things are normally done by just doing it a certain different way. And as long as you have, as the filmmaker, an intent behind it, it'll work. You know, again, I've recommended this movie uh, cautiously to many, many people over the decade. And some people don't like it. It's not for everyone. It's not, it's not, for, yeah, it's not for everyone, folks. It's not for everyone. Even the people who don't like it will often tell me that how much they like this scene. Because, yes, we've all seen this so many times. We've seen the first date thing so many times, but it's never been like this. The tediousness of the acting and the volley, the volleying they're doing back and forth is so good. But then, yeah, again, Sean Bobbitt's cinematography is all helping that. Why cut away from this nervous tension? Let's just stick with it. Let's see it all play out. And the dialogue is, this is the most important dialogue in the movie because it's the only time he's asked about his family. And his response or lack of it is, you know, are you close to your family? And just, uh, I have a sister. And it's like, hmm, wow, what in the world is back in there? Like, doesn't even talk about mom and dad. There's just nothing. So, God, yeah, it's very, very telling. And I love that the awkwardness of the first date is so clearly there. But then the next scene is them walking down the street, which is really well lit, by the way, which is to say natural lighting like it it holds with them in the dark for a while i just love that but now things are kind of okay and it seems like the date may have you know picked back up and that can happen and i i just i love that i love the way they're playing off of each other as they're walking on the street you know it's clearly gone a little better than it started off and that's kind of fun to imagine like oh i wonder what else was talked about to where they're both kind of vibing now like this is cool yeah and then the steve mcqueen magic oneer i just want to give some attention to them i mean he he, he's a guy who shoots in masters so he like the scene with carrie mulligan on the phone to her boyfriend i don't have to go out i don't have to go out they shot that twice and just had the camera on her for 15 minutes like each time and he said 
Okay, go. And then they pick, he picks whatever 60 seconds he wants out of that. So that can be a very grueling type of filming for an actor. But for Shame in particular, like he was very specific about the casting and he wanted theater actors, people who could stay in these scenes for long periods of time. But yeah, I mean, that first date, of course, but then you have that very long conversation in Hunger, which is incredible. The camera doesn't move, but it's like, holy shit, it just so forces you to pay attention to what they're saying. And then like the the car shot in Widows, which is, <laughs> you're just like, you're hearing this wise ass, privileged white politician talk about all this, all this groveling while we just, you know, look at the city crumbling before our very eyes around him, around us. So God, Steve McQueen, he knows how to handle a camera just as well as anyone else making movies nowadays. And I love that story about Mulligan with 15 minutes because that to me is like a dream. Like when you know you just basically like you're you're like, all right, you're on the phone and things aren't going well with your boyfriend. Go. Yeah, I, I could see a lot of actors being frustrated about that. But I to me, that sounds like what, what a what a way to get to something that could never been scripted. Yeah. You know, yeah. if the actors if you got the right actor who's ready to go and take on that task, you're going to come out with something. And it is a very, very like when those cuts happen. It's like, oh, my God, she's a mess. Like, yes. she is. Total mess. Absolutely. Yeah. So then that date goes well, and we arrive pretty quickly at the Standard Hotel, which is actually where the New York, New York sequence took place in, the, in that bar, which I went to uh, before the pandemic, and it was amazing. I talked about that on one of our first pod episodes, actually. I like this scene a lot for what it shows, that he's trying. He's trying to do the thing. He's doing the date thing. And now, even though this is very unconventional and it's like, hey, let's leave work early. I'm going to do a line in the bathroom and then we're going to hook up like, what? (laughs) Okay, dude, which she clearly isn't expecting, (laughs) but can't do it. And then we immediately cut to something he can do, which is, you know, a really kind of intense, quick sex scene. But that cut is meant to be very, very startling because, I mean, this is arguably his most shameful moment in the movie, at least his internal shame, not being able to, you know, perform with his coworker here with Marianne and that startling cut to him just boom, they're standing in the window doing that thing. And then if you watch the way that woman who I've I've never like, is she a prostitute? Is she just like a casual hookup of him? But they have a history there. Like they've done this before. And I just that whole interaction they have I heard McQueen talk about they focused on that a lot, like the way his partners interact with him and he interacts with them kind of tells you a lot about him. But yeah, just the whole standard hotel sequences. It's really something. (laughs) And I love that you brought up that. I think you're you said it best, like he was trying and the way that he even started it was before at work where he just basically pulls her off to that little tiny corner, like where it's like like the uh, makeshift cafeteria with that beautiful blurred wall, which you can totally see. He makes his intentions known and moves on her uh, and kisses her in a way that's sort of like telling like, hey, let's let's go and do this. Let's go and try Mm -hmm. this. Like that was his way of trying to be maybe romantic. And it just and he and he gives it the best shot he can. Mm -hmm. And he really does. And it just doesn't work. And you're right, that cut is very jarring and it forces you as the audience member to think about what's really happening because you could just leave it at, oh, he couldn't get it up. Mm -hmm. But if you decide to engage with the movie more, especially what we've seen up until this point, well, why can't he get it up? 
That's the well, whole point. Exactly. That's the whole point. It's like, it's not just because he wasn't feeling it. It's because he was trying to do something different and it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And he's still got to, you know. Fuel his need. Yeah, he's got, yeah, exactly. Fuel his need, yeah. Man, how troubling that must be going forward from that. Because mm-hmm. he probably has not tried this many times, if at all. I agree. And and, and it continues the the downward spiral for him. I mean, when he just, as Marianne's leaving and he just leans his head against the glass, it's like, he's thinking like, oh, I have to work with this woman. Like, this is yeah. going to get out. Like, this, what, what, I mean, talk about shame. It's like, oh my God. So what's the only way to suppress this shame, to push it down? I'm just going to, whoever this is, I'm going to hire this prostitute that I've likely hired before. We're going to have our fun. And then she's going to leave. And then guess what? I'm going to be sitting here right alone, staring out the fucking window again. And then whew, goes home and we get one hell of a doozy of an argument. You know, you and I are big, big fans of realistic movie arguments. This, again, is one of the best. How are you helping me? How are you helping me? (laughs) You come in here and you're a weight on me. You're a burden. You're just dragging me down. Can't even clean up after yourself. Your impressions are... On on point. Oh, I mean, well, thank you. That's very nice. But uh, oh, oh, man, how many times I've done that? Just <laughs> camera doesn't cut, doesn't move. It just yep. stays on the back of their fucking heads as they're on a couch. And we see varying degrees of their profile, but we never get a full look at them. He's watching some anonymous cartoon, which just fits so perfectly for me. He's just sitting there blankly. When he grabs her face, it's just so scary. And that's what that is what makes him leave. He cannot handle just the thinnest comment about his sex life. And he's like, I'm gone. See ya. Oh man. And that's what starts off, you know, his this wild, hellacious night. But that that argument is really a thing of screenwriting wonder and acting wonder. Because they are so yeah. still and they are so brilliant. And the way his voice will just go down a few registers, you know, how are you helping me? I mean, oh my God. It re- it just rattles me. I think he's. I think it's a very very well played scene. Oh. And I think the line the, of the whole entire scene is hers when she's like, "Don't you talk to me about sex life? Not from you." Because mm-hmm. you're right. It's the only time it's ever even uttered or mentioned, and she's the only one who knows. Yeah. Exactly. Even when I was alluding exactly. to before the scene where he throws out all the porn stuff, that's because she saw it. Yeah, she saw his cam girl. <laughs> yep, and he got. So upset by that, when she left, he threw it all out. So that wound was like touched. And who's to who else is to say what she knows? You know, mm-hmm. so he knows that she's the one that could get to him about that stuff if he doesn't want to face it himself. So it's the most stinging line that anyone could say to him. And I love that he his only response is whatever. And he gets up, he's like, whatever. And then, he, no, you'll move out. And that's it. And then he sets off on, I mean, I could do an entire podcast episode of the next 10 minutes of this movie, which is not only my favorite sequence in the movie, but I, I have not seen a better movie sequence since this one. And in the 10 years I've seen it, it takes us into this unraveling binge montage, which is so smartly put together. We're going back to this crazy eight editing style, which when the pandemic hit, I kind of I watched this scene over and over and wrote down every scene and tried to figure out like the math of it. Like, OK, he's on the subway, but this is at the end of the night. OK, now we're going back to the bar. So that's first. OK, and then then we're doubling back. And now he's in front of the club. I mean, the first time you see it, it's such an experience of living in his headspace. And we're going back and we're trying to fig- figure out where we are. And we're like, oh, God, like, how's this bar thing going to turn out? How's this? 
this was such an influence on me, this sequence. And I mean, I could break down like each individual part of it, but it really helped me gain confidence in overlapping dialogue with other scene that's going on in a movie. And the way that I use this best probably in my own filmmaking was when we were editing There I Go. And you have your character has a conversation with his mom in the beginning of it. And as written, we were just going to see you on the street making this phone call just kind of straight in order. And I was trying to tell you, like, what if we do that and we shoot that? But then as you're talking to her on the phone, I'm going to show different things throughout like the past maybe like the half hour before this phone call and then the half hour directly after. And we're going to have that going on while you talk. And I remember you being like, huh? <laughs> but then I cut yeah. it together and that was what I was going for. Just this kind of revolving crazy eight narrative. And I have way, way more work to do with that. But I mean, Joe Walker as the editor is never more alive than he is here. But this, you know, what do you, th what are your first impressions of this montage? Cause I could talk about it forever. Well, I think the most important thing is like if you're not paying attention, the scope of this crazy editing will get lost on you if you do not notice when it very first starts that he has a cut on his cheek. Yeah, he is, he's bruised up and you're like, why yep. did I miss something? Like did him and Karen Mulligan just Ex get into a fight or like what what is this? Exactly. Yeah. Like what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Then when it cuts to right, then very next thing you see him at the bar, he looks good. And he doesn't have that. So you're sort of starting to wonder, like, what is going on here? And then you start to see how it starts to really track itself. And it's just such a wonderful way to to tell a story. Like, I really want to know, like, was this by design to start? Or was this something that happened in the edit? Well, that's hard to say because when we get a hold of scripts, of shooting scripts, they have often been written based on the final cut of the movie. So that's how they're writing it. So often those editing cuts are now written into the uh. screenplay we can get a hold of. What did the actual first draft or the thing they actually shot with? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this was found in editing. The script I've had and that I've written is written exactly how it is in the movie, but I have a little bit of a difficult time believing that they would have mapped it out that because it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle that you yeah. kind of have to decode. And that's something just as if I'm writing, I would let my editor, even if I wasn't editing it, I would be like, I want to see what they can do with this. And, you know, you'd give the editor the note of we want to mash this up and kind of and they do it in the beginning, too. That's the thing. Yeah. The beginning is it's an it's an easier montage to follow, but the music is very similar and then they're, they're just adding more layers to it in this second one. So I think some of it was undoubtedly found in editing in terms of how many times they go back to, you know, him on the street and him in the bar. For instance, the, the final sequence of the montage, the threesome was was planned yeah. out very deliberately on purpose. And I, 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 obviously, know. yeah, yeah. So the first time I saw this movie, like I was in tears by the end of that sequence because that camera just pivots and we're stuck on his face. This oh. face that turns into like this hollow skeleton. And I just remember thinking at the time, perhaps this is a little naive for like a 25 year old to think, but being like, hmm, I think in any other circumstance this is supposed to be fun. And this is not fun. This man is in hell. This man is like damn near, like I said earlier, near death. And that is, it was just so upsetting for me. I loved this guy so much. I loved Sissy. I wanted, I felt for them. I wanted to know where they're from. And I just saw him completely unraveling and crumbling. And 
you know, Steve McQueen said he shot, they shot that scene as a foursome. He wanted the camera to feel like you were among the sea of flesh and you're just thrown right in there. And, and despite the subject material of that scene, it is incredibly well shot and incredibly staged and acted. And there's a few, there's a few interesting things about that scene. That was the second time they shot that. They shot it a first time with different actresses and they were, McQueen did not like how the footage came out. So Michael Fassbender did not want to go and, you know, suit up and do that again. But he kind of said, you know, I think we have to go back and give this another try. And they did. And he was way more vulnerable in it in terms of his acting. And that's how you get to like that skeletal end. But it was the three actors in the room, Sean Bobbitt, the cinematographer, who was also operating the camera and Steve McQueen. That's it. And that I like. I like it being a very, very close set. No one else needs to to be here. We don't have sound because it's all going to be music. And I had a love scene and wait, it didn't have any nudity. Nudity doesn't really interest me. It didn't interest me for that story. It makes sense in the context of shame, but it was the same thing. Like we didn't have sound. I knew music was going to play over it. It was very quick. It was, I was operating the camera. So I used that, you know, this sex scene and shame kind of as a template of how to shoot something to do it, you know, cause it's all, it's, you have to be very respectful and everything, but my God, this thing just, the music peaks and it's its really one of the most haunting things I've ever seen in a movie. And I haven't been this moved by a movie sequence since. And very rarely just in the totality of my life has a movie gotten to this big of an emotional crescendo. And I've just been, I mean, my life was changed because of it. Oh my God. I mean, I, I think the the thing that I got from it, too, is like, you're right. I mean, it, it's it's horrific it, it, when you've gone on the ride with this movie and you get to this. But when you're looking at the visuals that you're seeing and you're realizing that, like, in any other way, you'd be feeling very differently towards this. It's like the flesh doesn't even matter. Mm-hmm. I think that spoke to his addiction and any pleasure that there once was to receive from this this scenario, this body is no longer there. It is just as meaningless and emotionless as the scene makes it come across. And that's how good it is to, to make you feel by what you're seeing that that's what he's feeling. Man, so cool. Yeah, and this is a this is a staple of the addiction film that you have the unraveling scene, the binge, the scene when they're really like losing it. I mean, I can think of Jack Lemmon in Days of Wine and Roses looking for a bottle of liquor in a greenhouse and losing his alcoholic mind. So this is something that these type of movies re- depend on, usually a scene like this, but I've never yep. seen it done this way because it's not explosive. Never. And it, again, there's just no joy in it. And it's this constant forward moving thing and then the most telling thing in the entire film happens just as that three ways beginning and it is sissy saying we are not bad people we just come from a bad place Mm -hmm. and that's that so unpack the movie based on that comment and then you know thanks for letting me stay and it's like just hearing that voicemail you know her words play over the beginning of that scene and then it the sound of it fades out and the music comes up. Oh man, it's really something. It's a, it's just so alive. What an odd sequence for me to fall so in love with because it is, it does contain, you know, some troubling stuff, but the way it is set up and acted, everything about it, the way it's shot, it's so, so inspiring to me. Well, the ride it takes you on. Yeah. And, and then, and what you're left with when it's over, like Mm -hmm. literally the aftermath, the rubble, the complete destruction of this guy 
you know, we compared um, like addiction movies to like Requiem for a Dream, like mm-hmm. in that whole ending thing. Like, I can't watch that. Like, yeah. it's yeah. so it's so jarring and difficult to watch. Where this is certainly not pleasant, but you're on this ride. You're being taken care of by the director in a way that sort of like, no, no, no. Like, we know what you're seeing isn't it pleasurable, but like. It it matters, mm-hmm. and the payoff that you're gonna get at the end to find out where this character is and where you lie with him is important. So just stick with it, and it's never once like pushing you away. It's certainly not fun, but it's not like ever disturbing in the sense where I can't watch this anymore. I think that's a very fine line to toe, and one that needs to be if you're a director and Steve McQueen being like, all right, where is that line? Like, where is that line between people walking out and people being like, fuck, man, Jesus. A very hard balance to achieve there. So to leave a little mystery alive for the movie, in case someone's made it this far in the podcast (laughs) and still hasn't seen it, there are a few scenes left in the movie. We don't need to dive into them. They are intense for different reasons, but the movie resolves itself with him alone. First, he's crying, you know, by himself and has a full kind of breakdown. Oh my God, it's so moving to watch. And then we end sort of where we began, which is on the subway, you know, being tempted by the dragon. And I really liked that you said you found hope in this because maybe, you know, maybe she will be okay and maybe he will be okay. Who the hell knows? I don't know. But they both are very, very well aware now that they are not okay. And there is no more hiding. And that is, you know, that's got to at least count for something. They don't, he doesn't seem like he's someone who wants to recede now that all this stuff has been exposed. He looks like he's on his way to a job. I don't know if he has the same job, but he's on his way there. How will it all end? Who knows? (laughs) The train keeps moving. And the ambiguity of it is so perfect because, of course, like, there is no answer. But I think what's ultimately more important is not what actually happens is just what you like hope would happen. And, and like, that's, I think what got me this time is I was like, I feel like, you know, Sissy and Brandon were each other's saving graces in so many ways. And now that they've reached a point where you said it best, where they realize they're both not okay going forward, at least for Brandon, we don't know about her, but going forward, this is the choice. You're right. This, this is the dragon. What are you going to do? Beautiful. In closing, I just want to give a public service announcement hmm. that if you really, really love a movie, I don't care what the movie is. Just own that love. Don't listen to what people say to you. They call you a weirdo for liking an NC-17 movie about a sex addict. <laughs> I have received a lot of awkward looks from people when I tell them my love for this, but you know, it's all good because this I have such a deep personal relationship to this movie, to my own work, to my love of cinema in general, that this one lives within me and it always will. And whatever your movie is or movies are that make you feel that way, just own that because I love that. I love this feeling. It's been great to talk about this. We really dove in. I was glad we gave this one the time that it needed. I've been wanting to do this since we started the podcast. <laughs> oh, this was, yeah, this has been a long time in the making. I mean, it was going to happen. There was just no way. Like, there was no way yeah. when we started this, there wasn't going to come a day where we were going to do a shame breakdown. I had I had a wonderful time really getting into some of the nitty gritties about this. That brings us to what are you watching? We made it. We made it to the end of shame. Oof. You're first up today for what are you watching? I can't believe we did it. God. 
there there's there's another movie that it's not exactly addiction based but um i the movie i'm recommending is uh 2015 james white oh yes there's a lot of parallels you can make in terms of the way that we get into the headspace of these two very male characters of of uh, michael fassbender in shame and christopher abbott in james white there's a double feature for you. <laughs> oh boy. Oh my god. I'll do it. <laughs> but um this was a movie that you turned me on to um in preparation for I am alive and um it spoke to me in in a in a very very visceral way in the same way that shame spoke to you in such a visceral way. So I was like if I'm going to recommend one movie off of this that's connected in some sort of cinematic universe, James White would be it. James White is a fantastic movie. It is raw to the bone. We love that thing to death. I mean, you got Christopher Abbott in there, a never better Christopher Abbott. Kid Cuddy's in there. Cynthia Nixon is amazing in it. It's a great movie. Yeah. I, God, I mean, we really could do good. a whole podcast on that easily. Yeah, 100%. So that's cool. You went kind of in tandem with another kind of guy crumbling down, watching him crumble down in New York City. Nonetheless, I went with a different angle here. I'm kind of branching out. I can't believe I'm doing this. I am going to go with a TV show, which I never do, ever. You're breaking all the rules. <laughs> breaking all the rules. And this is for good reason. Two weeks ago, I watched a series on Hulu called Normal People. My, oh, my, oh, my. This is based on a book by Sally Rooney. She's an Irish author, and she's quickly become one of the best and most well-known millennial-aged writers out there. And this show is about two Irish people played with startling beauty by Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal. And we follow them over the course of their late teens and early 20s as they navigate life and a very complex love that they have for each other. And I don't go in for shows too much, and I don't talk about them on this podcast for a reason because we're trying to keep movies alive, but this thing is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. The reason why I'm linking it to shame is because the sexuality in normal people between the characters, and particularly the sexuality of the Daisy Edgar Jones character, is it's a huge part of the show. And not unlike shame, normal people deals with some very tricky subject material, but it handles it so damn well. Normal People is 12 episodes, but they're each only 30 minutes long, so you can watch the whole show in less than six hours, which I totally didn't do in one sitting two weeks ago. <laughs> it's a great show. It really is. I didn't even want to text you about it because I knew I was going to bring it up on the podcast at some point, but this thing gets my full recommendation, and it was produced in tandem with BBC and BBC shows like really really get it right yeah they're good this thing is great and it has a great conclusion i re-watched the final episode three times um it's perfect normal people came out in 2020 it's on hulu right now well perfect because i actually just finished the show i was watching so i was looking for a new one to have that's gonna be it i think you're really gonna like it and oh my god if people put on shame james white and normal people they're just in for a doozy of an emotional time but please go watch these movies if you if you've never seen shame or i don't know you saw it once and it was just like too intense which i understand and you want to watch it again let us know let me know i'll talk with anyone anytime about this movie and i want to thank you for doing this with me we made it the end of shame <laughs> oh god my pleasure as always everyone thank you so much for listening and happy watching Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. 
You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Just in time for Licorice Pizza, next time is all about Paul Thomas Anderson from Heart 8 to Phantom Thread. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What Are You Watching? (laughs) Go for it. Take it over. That'd be fucking hilarious, especially with this episode. You want me to do it? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was almost a spit take. Oh, man. It went off. It went all over my mic. (laughs) I know. All over the equipment. That would have been a shitty way to start. All right. Oh.